This week we observe the fourth week of Advent. And to this point, the, the topics that we've covered each week have focused on the result of God's work in the world. For example, the first week was hope. That's our confidence in the future that God has for us. It's our confidence that He is going to fulfill the promises that, that He's made. That one day He's going to bring everything that He's been working towards to, to a culmination and all that He's been working towards will occur. We will get to be in His presence forever. And then the second week we talked about our peace. See, that's our confidence in God's provision even in the present moment. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the difficulties we face in life, because we have peace with God, because we have been given peace with God and peace from God, because our soul is at peace, our spirit is at peace, the rest of us can experience peace. We experience peace that passes understanding. And then in last week, in the third week, we spoke about and looked at joy. That's the exceeding happiness. That's the direct result of knowing and being known by Jesus. It's not tied to circumstances. It's tied to the person and work of Christ. Our happiness is tied up in knowing Him and being known by Him. But each of these are a result of something else. They're the effect piece of a cause and effect equation. But today we're not just dealing with the results. We're going right to the source. We're going to God's love. Love is the foundation of God's kingdom that makes our hope and peace and joy possible. It's God's love that made Him work in such a way that provides us hope. It's God's love that worked in such a way that gives us peace with Him. It's God's love that moved and motivated Him to provide us an exceeding happiness. They're the result of God's work, but God's work is motivated by God's love. His great, powerful, proactive, benevolent, and sacrificial love for His people. You see, as we reside in this unique position in history, remembering Jesus' first coming and anticipating His return, our waiting well is made possible because God has loved us so sincerely, so completely, so unconditionally. It's God's love. Now, this morning we're, we're looking at, at the book of Psalms. We're, we're studying a special psalm that that re reiterates that, that it's God's love at work in the world that gives us all the blessings. This is the source or the motive of all of His blessings. It's Psalm 136. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're not going to look at every last verse. I, I want to give you a sampling of it so that you can hear it and, and just gain, gain, gain some insight. But we're certainly going to be picking out some of the most more important, I think, uh, uh, principles and, and statements made. It says it's, it opens in verse 1. It says, Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him alone, to Him who alone does great wonders, for His steadfast love endures forever. I'm going to skip down now to the end just as, this, as the psalmist summarizes the work of God, picking up in 
Uh, verse 23, it says, It is He who remembered us in our low estate, for His steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes, for His steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for His steadfast love endures forever. Now as we look at that psalm, as we consider the words of the psalm, we, we see that, that God's work in the world, God's creation, God's efforts in the world are a result of His steadfast and enduring love. That's what the psalmist is teaching us. It's what he's reiterating over and over. Now, most of our time is going to be spent in these first in the first four verses. Like I said, I just want to give you a sampling of what the psalmist had to say. But let's look in those first three verses. And, and I think in those opening lines of the psalm, the psalmist establishes for us three traits of God that's then later demonstrated throughout the rest of the psalm and it is a demonstration of his, of his active and sacrificial, beneficial, proactive love. He first says in verse 1 when he says, to give thanks to the Lord for He is good. That first trait that the psalmist points out is God's goodness. God is good. And we know this as a result of His steadfast love that endures forever. We know God's goodness because His steadfast love has worked on our behalf. You see, it seems like it's God's goodness is it's always being put on trial. So from our perspective, it's difficult to understand how suffering exists in the world when God's Word claims that He's good. Maybe this isn't the first time you've heard this argument. I had a dear friend who used to come to this church, came to the church for, a long, for, for, for quite some time. We used to talk about this intently. I worked with him uh, before, I, before I stepped out of, um, out, of the, out, of, out of the secular workforce. I worked alongside him and... and we, we had this discussion time and time and time and time again. And his big problem with God was that if he was so good, how could suffering exist? But this, this guy that I know, he's, he's this friend of mine, he's not the first person who's asked this question. This has been a question that has existed for generations. Generations and generations and generations. People have been struggling with this. Let, let me encourage you with this. Let me, let, me, let me share something with you. Suffering does not undermine God's goodness. Because suffering doesn't start with God. You see, suffering, listen, suffering exists as a byproduct of our sin and rebellion. Every ounce of suffering that exists in this world, every moment, every struggle, every trial, every problem, every difficulty we face, every lack, every bit of, la- that, uh, of, of our life that lacks peace, everything, all suffering starts and finds its source in our sin and rebellion. When God created the world, He created it in harmony. The man and the woman enjoyed a special, close relationship with God. They walked with Him in the garden in the cool of the evening. They knew their Creator and He knew them. They were connected to Him closely, intimately. They knew one another specifically and specially. They were connected. And they lived in harmony. 
with God. They lived in harmony with one another and they lived in harmony with the creation. They had a purpose there. They had a reason for for existing and everything had its place and everything had its purpose and everything was, was, was good and harmonious. And then the rebellion happened. And then the man and woman went their own way and all the harmony and all the peace and all the goodness was shattered. And there enters the curse and all of the suffering. You see, it wasn't until Adam's rebellion that, that the work of his hands the, but, but became toil, became difficult for him and, and not a pleasure but a burden. It's in that moment when, when God had said to, to, to go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. In the moment of the curse, that command, that command would bring pain. He told the woman that in childbirth you will, you will bear much pain. You see, God, God is good. Our, our sin, our rebellion, we are responsible for suffering. And regardless if it's someone else's sin or our sin, all of the suffering we experience today is a direct result of sin. All suffering that we experience today is a direct result of someone's sin and rebellion against God. You see, the reality is this is that we shouldn't be asking how can a good God and suffering, a world full of suffering, exist side by side together. We should be asking, why do we experience goodness at all? Why in, in the midst of a sinful and rebellious world in which everyone is centered upon themselves and they worship themselves before others and they care more about themselves than others and, and, they, and they're out for themselves more than others in this world? Why is there any good that happens at all? You see, I think the psalmist gets it. The psalmist wants us to see. We know good because God is good. And His steadfast love has brought us. His steadfast, active Love has brought us face to face with His goodness. It allows us to see and experience His goodness. Listen, here's the difficulty. When we question the reality of suffering and God's goodness, we, pres- we presuppose that we deserve something better than we have received. When we when we determine and question God's goodness, it's because we feel like we deserve something better. According to God's standard, we deserve judgment, condemnation, and punishment and destruction. We should not be surprised that we suffer, but rather that we are able to know His goodness at all. But we know His goodness because His steadfast love endures forever. We should be more surprised by His grace, His mercy, and His love than we are by the suffering in the world. 
in the verses that follow this this first verse and the verse that follow the verses that follow these these first three verses as as the psalmist lays out um, um, traits of God, we see so we see difficulty and calamity. We see God striking down the firstborn of Egypt. That's difficult to reconcile in our minds. He brought plagues against them. And the final plague, the greatest of all the plagues, was that the firstborn of all of their children, the, the firstborn of their children and the firstborn of their livestock were struck down and they were killed. It, it refers later to, to God making, going in front of His people and killing mighty kings and looting their things for the Israelites. See, that challenges our standards of goodness. That doesn't sound good, but, but you're telling me God is good and that I'm the result of suffering, or I'm the, the source of suffering and I'm the source of, 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 of trouble in the world and that, and that so is every other sinful person in the world. But, but how does this reconcile? You see, I think our greatest problem, I think our greatest problem is that God's not just good. But He's the standard of good and all He does is good. But we miss His goodness oftentimes. We misunderstand His goodness because we'd rather measure goodness based on our standard. You see, God is the standard of what good is. Everything He does is good. Everything He does has good purpose. It's good intentions. It's it's good through and through. It's because all He does is motivated out of His steadfast and enduring love. It's in order to protect His people. To fulfill His plans. To complete His purposes. Let me just illustrate this for you in this way. As a dad, as a dad, if, if I allowed someone to come into my home, rape my wife, and take my sons, and I did nothing to defend them, would I be considered a good dad? Would it be good for me to just sit back and do nothing? Well, you know, I really don't want to get involved in that. I really don't want to have a part to play in that. I, I, that, that looks too difficult for me. I'll just step back and do nothing. No. Of course, it would. it's good for me to stand in defense of my family, protect them, provide for them, to do what's necessary to save them. Of course, it's good for me to take care of my family. Let me ask you, if I'm able to do this for my family, how much more right does God have to do this for His family, for His people? You see, the, the thing is, is that we quit measuring goodness based on God and we begin measuring goodness based on our own perspectives. God is not good, just good. He is the standard of good. All He does is good. All He does has intention and purpose and, and meaning and it's motivated out of this steadfast and enduring love. It's motivated for... for it's, it's motivated out of love and therefore it, it's good. You see, in our, our difficulties, our lack of understanding, they don't undermine His goodness. 
It just demonstrates that we don't, we're not looking at it from His perspective. And my hope and my prayer, my, my, my desire I, as I prepare for this for, for you guys this week is, is that in some ways, in, in, some, in some way that you gain a glimpse of the goodness of God even in your life. You see, so often we're looking for other circumstances because we're doubting God's goodness in the moments and in the struggles and the things that He allows for us. He, we, we doubt His goodness because things aren't working out exactly like we planned. Things are difficult. We're suffering. There's struggles in life. And we doubt His goodness. And we put His goodness on trial. But know this. He loves you. And that love endures forever. And therefore, everything you endure, everything you face, everything as a child of God that you have to persevere through is intended for your good and His glory. God is good. We don't need another circumstance. We need a greater understanding of the goodness of God motivated by the steadfast and enduring love of God. Give thanks to this God. Praise this God. Worship this God. Because He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Verse 2, we get the second trait of God that the psalmist shares with us. We see His divinity. It says, give thanks to the God of gods. There is no other God. There is one God. Certainly there are all kinds of false gods. Certainly there are all kinds of things we raise up as God. But there is one God and we are allowed in His presence as a result of His steadfast love that endures forever. Now we've already established in this first point, we already established in the first point that, that all suffering and sin became as, came as, as a result of our sinful rebellion. Because of our sinful rebellion and our going our own way, we deserve, as the Scripture teaches us, we deserve condemnation, separation, death, destruction. We deserve to not, to not know God. But because God is good, this one God, this highly uh, uh, divine God that, that, that is above all other gods, we are allowed in His presence as a result of His steadfast love. You know, we may not realize it. We may not even recognize it. But this is another area. This is another place in our life which we are constantly pushing back against God. We're constantly pushing back and, and acting as if there are other things more important than Him. See, most of us don't live our life as if He's the only God. We don't live with Him preeminently placed and prominently placed in our life that all of our life is devoted to Him. Calvin wrote, and you've probably heard this before, but Calvin wrote, our hearts are idol factories. We're constantly raising up little G-gods out of, of our own making, of our own design, and we devote our lives to them. At some points in history, this, this has been tangible idols. I mean, it's not something we see a lot today in our, in our culture and context, but throughout history, this has been represented by tangible things like statues, people, the, the creation, suns and mountains, the moon. 
people who were seemingly less educated, you know, they, they had less scientific um, perspective. These, these cultures, they still do this. And even, even places where there's great science. I, I've been into a Buddhist temple where, where people were lighting incense and, and bowing before this statue and praying as if there was power there because the statue was there. Certainly it still happens. It's just not as prominent where we live and breathe. You see, some of our some of our idols are just they're, they're just as tangible, but they're less they're less awkward and and uh, more socially acceptable. But we build stadiums that fill and, and hold thousands of people, and every week people gather in them, and there's worship services held. But the thing going on at the base of these stands, where all of these people are worshiping, is not a worship service directed to the God who created the heavens and earth. But it's a field in which our heroes play to win. You know, the interesting thing about this is that this is such a big part of our culture, that sports is is such a huge part of our culture that we don't just get enough of it by by sitting, sitting back and watching it. But now, now there's leagues of people who give up time who focus energy and thought to not just watching the sport, but fantasizing that they're running their own team. Look, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with watching football. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with fantasy football or any 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 of these sports or any of the fantasy leagues that have, have cropped up as a result. But it's unfortunate that so many of us, that so many of us in our culture, even as Christians, know more about our sports team and their stats than the things that God has said to us in His Word. What are we most devoted to? See, the psalmist wants us to remember He is the God of gods. He resides above them all. He exalts Himself over all of them. And in the end, it'll be proven. It'll be shown. It'll be known. But we push back against it every day. Sometimes our, our, our idols, sometimes those, those things that we devote ourselves to are not quite as tangible. Tim Keller identifies four heart idols that, that we give ourselves to, devote ourselves to, their power, approval, comfort, and control. And behind each of these, behind each of these heart idols, behind giving ourselves to maintaining power, to, to maintaining control, to finding approval from others, these four heart idols, behind every one of them is our greatest idol. Ourselves. See, every day we step into a world and we strive to do our own things, to go our own way, to prove ourselves to those around us. And many times we don't ever consider God or His glory. We we don't ever stop to think that as we push for our own agenda, that we are exalting ourselves over Him. Listen. In spite of this, in spite of this, we are not crushed. We are not condemned. We are not cast out. Rather, as God's people, as God's chosen ones, we get to know Him and be known by Him. 
In spite of what we do, we're not His enemies, but have been given His peace. See, in spite of this, in spite of what we do, we are not facing destruction. We are given life because of His steadfast love. God is good. He is the God of gods. And then in verse 3, we see the, the third trait. And that's His authority. God is the highest authority and His statutes and decrees are the result of His steadfast love that endures forever. He's the Lord of lords. That's what the psalmist says. It simply means the master of masters. He's the master above all masters. He is the one who determines the position of the stars. He commanded the land to rise and the waters to recede. He establishes the decrees and standards of right and wrong, good and evil. He makes commands and expects obedience from all. There is no one else that has this authority and really no one that can challenge it. Yet we do. Yet we do. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the highest authority. Yet everywhere we turn, the people of our world are challenging His rule over us and establishing their own standards. Did you know that to trust God's Word more than pop culture or pop psychology. Now it's considered backwards and ignorant. Maybe, I, I don't know that this is when it started, but maybe it's when it began to be uh, publicized and began to be okay to say it out loud. But back when Obama was in his first run for office in the first election that he was running for office, or for the presidency anyway, in that election there was a comment made and it, it, it didn't get a whole lot of widespread publicity. But certainly the, the talk radio hosts were, who were trying to defame Obama were playing it because they wanted they wanted to bring Republicans up against him. But they wanted to make sure that everybody heard that Obama had said what Obama had said about the uh, Midwest. As he talked about us as a people who really just want our guns and our religion. And he said it in a derogatory way in which was intended to say that basically we're just not as smart as everybody else. We, we're, we're stuck to backwards ways and, and, and ways that are, have gone... Uh, that, that, that are no longer necessary. We're smarter than that now. We don't need these things. We're considered to be ignorant, considered to be less intelligent, considered to be not as informed. Because God's ways are no longer man's ways. God's commands are no longer acceptable under uh, man's perspectives or by man's perspectives. Maybe you just heard of this this week. It's um, it caused a lot of a lot of um, a lot of things. A, a lot of bloggers and and people on Twitter and Facebook were posting and taking sides. It caused all kinds of um, all, all kinds of rustling about in in Twitterverse. And and I think it's interesting that it happened. And I, I get to use it as an illustration today. But Phil Robertson, you, you guys know Phil Robertson, the the the, the father of um, of the Robertson clan that we all enjoy to watch as, or not we all, but many many people enjoy watching as on, on Duck Dynasty. 
Well, this week he was in a GQ article, an article in the magazine GQ, and he made some comments that caused a lot of discussion. If you didn't hear about this, in short, just let me share with you what he said. He was basically asked about homosexuality and about... um, He's just being interviewed and it was was asked some things about this. And he began to express he expressed his view. He expressed his view on where we were at and some of the difficulties we face in our in our culture. He expressed his view on homosexuality. Now some of the words he chose were coarse and there certainly was a better way to say it. There certainly was a, a, a kinder, clearer, more compassionate way to say it. But you know, in all of the in all of the reading and research I did, because I, as I read this and, and saw this happening, I thought this is going to be a great sermon present sermon illustration this week. So I began to read about it and read all these different perspectives and all these different blog posts, people standing up to support and people standing up to to uh, rail against Phil Robertson's words and his attitude and his perspectives. Now I'm not going to condemn Phil Robertson for the coarseness of his words. I, I think if I were to talk to him and, and be able to speak with him face to face, I think I'd say you really should have chose a different thing, a different way to say what you said. I think I would I would say, you know, there's a better way to say it. But here's the thing is that haven't we all said things in ways and w- ways that we wish we hadn't said them? I, I've even had to repent of things I've said from the pulpit because they were maybe too coarse or crass for the context in which they were spoken. But you know what I found interesting as I as I did all this research and did this reading around all this? Nobody was really upset of, about the coarseness or crassness of his words. See, it really seemed to be that they were more upset because Phil Robertson chose to use the perspectives of Scripture to inform his view of homosexuality. And there were plenty of comments about him lumping in homosexuality with bestiality and removing, uh, removing the, 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 um, the worth of, of a person and basically making a homosexual less than a person who's heterosexual, but removing their dignity. And here's the difficulty. Here's the difficulty we face. Here's the struggle. If you go back into Leviticus and you begin to read the commands of God and He's commanding people not to have sex with other men the way they have sex with women. It says to to lay with a man as you would lay with a woman. But that's an abomination. And And to sleep around with just whoever you feel like sleeping around with. That's sexual immorality. And in those same passages, in those same passages, in those same places, God says, if you lay with an animal, if you have sex with an animal, the way you have sex with people, it is an abomination. You see, from God's perspective, from the perspective of God's commands and God's words, sexual immorality is sexual immorality regardless, whether it's whether it's just a, a man and a woman outside of marriage, whether it's a, a, a man and a man, a woman and a woman, or a man and an animal. These things are unacceptable to God. And, and, and maybe, they're, maybe they take different states of mind. Maybe they take different uh, um, uh, mental 
cognition or mental stability to, to perform one or the other. Maybe it's becoming more and more acceptable as, as men lay with men and women lay with men. And, and it's totally different. It's disgusting to think of a person and an animal. But from God's perspective, by His commands, neither is acceptable. Doesn't mean that we need to be running out and condemning or harshly disapproving or being hurtful to these people. We need to tell them about Jesus and call them to love Jesus and recognize that as they learn to love Jesus, they'll learn to love the things that Jesus loves. You see, but here's the thing. I'm not asking you to stand in defense of Phil Robertson. I don't think it's our place to defend Phil Robertson. I don't think we need to jump out on our, our blogs and our Twitter feeds and our, our Facebook posts. I don't think we need to go out and start posting all this stuff about Phil Robertson and trying to come to his defense. That's not our job. I don't want you to miss the, the main point out of all of this that I think we need to recognize as the church. See, we can no longer walk along acting like the world's perspectives and their expectations of what's right and wrong and God's perspectives of what's right and wrong are the same thing. See, God is the, the He is the Lord of Lords. He's the masters of masters. He is the highest of all authorities. So to walk in line with His Word is to uh, walk in opposition to the world and to walk in line with the world's perspectives and what's right and wrong and what's acceptable and pleasing and comfortable and okay. It is to walk in opposition to God. We can no longer live in this world and be of this world. The call is to live in the world, but not be of it. The call is to follow God's commands, to commit our lives to God's way. Look, listen to me. God's laws are, are not to keep you down. His rules are given because He loves us. He is the Lord of lords. He exercises His authority because He knows what's best for us. He sets boundaries not because He wants to ruin our fun, not because He enjoys being some cosmic killjoy, but so that you would know and experience real joy. You see, we've been duped into believing that we can live in this world and just go on about our lives as if it's all okay and we're just God's going to just continue to forgive us and continue to love us and continue to do what's good for us. And, and, and in some way, that's right. But He is the authority of authorities. He's the Master of Masters. He gives His commands and expects His people to obey. If you are His child, He's calling you to walk in His way. He's calling you to live in obedience to Him. Not because He wants to ruin it for you. But because His steadfast love endures forever. Let me just ask you again as a parent. I mean, if we don't set boundaries for our children, are we good parents? If we don't give rules and we just sit back and, and, we'd, and we'd rather be uh, friends to our children rather than, than parents to them, are, are we loving them? 
I mean, if I never teach my child not to touch a hot stove or never teach my child to not put a paper clip into a light socket, am I loving them? Oh, you might say, oh, they'll only do it once. Yeah. They'll only put a paper clip into a light socket once. They'll only touch a hot stove once. But those are not the only things out there that can hurt them, that can destroy them, that can, hurt, that, that, that can, that can overcome them. You see, it's our responsibility to love our children by setting boundaries for them so that they understand what's good for them and what's not good for them. But let me ask you this question. Where are we going to build our opinions on what is good and bad, what's right and not right, what's allowable and what's not? What's acceptable and what's unacceptable? Where are we going to set those standards? I think God's Word is clear. I think the psalmist wants us us to know and understand that it is under God's authority that we're called to live. And He exercises this authority just like we as parents are called to exercise our authority out of great love. God extends His authority, exercises His authority out of great love. See, God's commands are given because He desires our ultimate and lasting eternal joy. He wants us to know joy and He exercises His authority in that way. He commands that we should love Him first above all others. Not because He's narcissistic and self-centered, but because He knows how He designed us. You and I, friend, you and I were created for God. We were created to have Him preeminent and prominent in our life. We were created, we were designed to worship Him, to know Him, to trust Him. And anytime we do anything opposite of that or in opposition to that, it's like trying to use a screwdriver to drive a nail. You're living outside of your design. It's not going to fit. It's not going to be right. Something's going to always be off. He calls you and commands you to serve Him, to love Him, to keep Him first. Because that's the first identifying factor of His design for you. And He loves you enough to call you to it. He commands that we love our neighbors as ourselves, not because He's more concerned about others than us, but because He knows that the only way we're able to glimpse the length and width and height and depth of His love is to love others the way we've been loved. You see, God's love is active. It's sacrificial. It's beneficial. It's not some, it's not some simple word that's thrown around as if it means nothing. It's not some simple thought or some simple idea. God's love is always acting in the benefit of others. The word, in fact, in the, in the Hebrew for this, for this word is, that's repeated over and over and over, this word is hased. There's really no direct American or direct English translation, I should say. There's no direct English translation. And so if you're reading in the King James Version, you're going to read um, mercy. If you're reading in the NASB, I think it's loving kindness. The NIV is simply love. The, the ESV that we're reading in, it is steadfast love. This is a love that is actively working for the good of others. It's an enduring love. It doesn't shift 
or change. It's not conditional on something else. It's steadfast. It's lasting. It's unconditional. It's proactive. It's sacrificial. It's beneficial. His concern for you runs deep and His action for you is undeniable. He commands you to love with this love because until you begin to extend it, until you begin to give it, you'll only see it from one side. You see, to get a 3D view of God's love, you've got to not just receive it, but you've got to give it away. You've got to be a conduit for it. He commands us to go and make disciples. You have three great commands of the New Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself and go and make disciples. He commands us to go and make disciples not because He needs entertainment, not because He thinks, oh, look at that. He just got the door slammed in their face. That kind of makes me chuckle. He doesn't need entertainment. He doesn't need to, to see the drama unfold as we, as we strive to make a way for the gospel in the world, as we strive to plant it in the ground and see it take root and bear fruit. But He does that that others will know this great and steadfast love. He's given us this way to love others, this way to ultimately love others, to give ourselves to the cause of His purpose, to the cause of His mission. And as we do, we'll be grown in faith. We'll be grown in the understanding of His great position. Or, I'm sorry, His great provision for us in Jesus. You see, as we begin to love others in this way, we will begin to gain a glimpse of how He has loved us this way. These three traits, we know them. We know God is good. We know that He is the God above all gods. He's Creator God. He's the God who is, who is exalted above all other things. And He is the Lord of lords because His steadfast love endures forever. Let me just share with you in verse 4 just quickly. He loves us. And we know this by the work He's done for us. Him alone who does great wonders. God's steadfast and enduring love is evident in all that He has done for us. I think this is the overarching intent of the psalm. It's to present the truth that God loves His people. He loved us then and He loves us now. The love we wait in, in as, as children of God as we sit here in this unique position in history, remembering that Jesus came and looking forward to His coming again, we don't have to wonder whether we have been loved by God. We can know we've been loved by God because He has worked wonders on our behalf. Listen, the love of God is not the deluded, emotional, selfish lustful desire that this world knows as love. It's not the impotent and meaningless words that get thrown around as, as the psalmist reminds us 26 times, one for each verse. It is the steadfast love that endures forever. This is the psalmist 
He's telling us this in unwavering devotion. He tells us how to recognize it, reminds us time and time again that this powerful love will always endure. This is the love that Paul referred to in his prayer from Ephesians 3 when he prayed that his readers would have the strength to know the, the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. It's the love that John referred to in his first letter that was demonstrated not by words, but by the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. It's the perfect love that John later refers to in that same letter when he says that it casts out all fear. God's love, the perfect love, casts out fear. It's the the love that's so great that Paul tells us that neither life nor death, angels or demons, our current circumstances, nor those to come, that nothing in all creation could separate us from it. It is the love that is patient and kind. The love that never fails. It is the love that's become so well known by John's Gospel that motivated our Heavenly Father to send His only Son that whoever believes would not have, would not perish, but would have eternal life. This great and powerful, benevolent and sacrificial love moved the psalmist to gratitude and worship. It caused him to consider God's goodness, his exalted position in this world, his unique identity, his ultimate authority. As we wait on the Lord now, this is the love that we are covered up in as we wait. We wait in his great and steadfast love. Listen, if we'll just develop this discipline, we just develop the discipline of considering God's love. We'll not only be able to wait, we'll be able to wait well. We'll, we'll be able to wait hopefully. We'll be able to wait peacefully. We'll be able to wait joyfully. When we wait in the depths of God's steadfast and enduring love, let's pray. Father God, You're good. You're gracious. We love You so much. Would You continue, Father, to do a work in the people of this church? Just continue to reveal Your love to them, Your power for them, that they might know the hope and peace and joy, not just of this season, but every day from here on out. Father, as you come to this time that that we're called to response, would we, Father, be moved by Your love to worship You in our lives, to praise You with our words, to exalt You in all that we do, that Your glory might be our reason for living. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.